Hey, everybody, you are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy, a podcast. I am your host, resident filmmaker, musician, dumbass, I mean, dumb guy, <laughs> Christian Serge. And as always with us, our co host, author, reverend, and soon to be doctor, Johnny Morrison, the smart guy. Equally dumbass, though, from time to time. <laughs> Maybe. If you've never listened to our show or you just forgot what happens from last week, every week for the next 23 minutes, potentially, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics from both a smart and a dumb and everything in between point of view. Thanks for listening to our show. Yeah, thank you. I, I wanted to just jump right in today. I've just seen so much news and differing opinions about the USPS. It's like half the people want to defund mm-hmm. the United States Postal Service. Um, half the people want to defund the police. But it feels like a little bit of diversion to me. I was reading an article in USA Today about what's really going on with the US Postal Service and what we know. And I think it's interesting because I looked up what is the Postal Service, when was it started, and how does it function? And I, th- I wanted to share a couple of really interesting things. I don't know if you know this. Maybe you do, because you are the smart guy. But it took me, I don't know, quite a few clicks uh, around here. But Benjamin Franklin was appointed the first postmaster general in 1775. I did not know that. Like, like the post office has been around forever. And yes. even before that, there was like a guy in like 1652 in Massachusetts who was appointed the guy who took the post from the States then to England. And that was hmm. kind of the beginning of it. And did you know that the post office was funded by our taxes until 1982? That was the last year that they were publicly serviced subsidy. So that means that since 1982, 40, almost 40 years, they have been a self-sustaining company of the federal government. Interesting. Yeah, where all other federal agencies are paid by our taxes. And we want to defund them. We want to stop them. We want to pay $5.50 instead of 55 cents to send a letter. You know, we want to privatize the Mm -hmm. company. So I don't know. The, The question I have is, why does it feel like at every corner the, the, the Democrats think Trump is out to sabotage the USPS? And why at every corner are Republicans saying that the people are getting what they deserve or you know the U.S. Post Office is getting what it's deserved? I don't get it. Huh. And by getting what you deserve, they mean like it's a bad organization, it's not run well, and it should be closed down? Is that what you mean? Well, yes, partly. Um, the other part is it seems to be attached to this uh, voter fraud. Mm. One side says we should be able to, you know, mail votes. And the other side says, no, it's going to be, you know, fraud's going to be, you know, just out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's an interesting question. Cause I, I like, this is like a personal level, like an anecdotal level. I have often been very frustrated with the postal service. Yes. Uh, and I, I have definitely had the thoughts where it's like, you know what, we should defund it, just get rid of it and switch over to, uh, FedEx and UPS or whatever. But on the other side of that, having a consistent mail service that is easily accessible, that can do mail-in voting, that reaches rural areas where privatized postal services often don't reach, and that is the tool of like Medicare and Medicaid, well, that feels like a really powerful and necessary tool also. So I, I can feel the tension a bit. You know, I grew up with the Postal Service 
in many stages where uh, if you sent a package, you didn't know if it was going to arrive huh. or in what shape. And I would also then remember when they uh, started shipping parcels. And I remember when they were like, hey, you can now insure your packages. Huh. And then I also remember uh, going to UPS and uh, I'm having my 20 pound package and they're like, oh yeah, that's $150. And then taking it to the USPS and mm-hmm. saying, oh, that's $20. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like it's not something that we want to defund. I, I, I yeah, And, and it, it's getting a lot of bad press. Well, I think that's a good point where it's like, the price difference is so substantive between like privatized FedEx, UPS and USPS that like it, you need something like the United States Postal Service for small businesses to use, for small companies to use, and even for the federal government to use to like send out drugs and Medicare and Medicaid. And if you get rid of that, well then all of a sudden you actually make the market that which small businesses are supposed to compete in even harder to compete because they can't pay the rates of like FedEx or whatever. Right. And, so, and, and they've done us a good service. Like they uh, do us a service. It's a service to the American people. And so now when they're struggling because of COVID, actually, was, was what the article talks about. It says, hey, a lot of the marketing materials that are being sent out were stopped. People mm. were not sending out the mail very much and, and parcels uh, weren't making as much money. As well as the general postmaster uh, was appointed by Trump and he's making a bunch of cuts to make the mail slower. Yep. So I think that we should keep the U.S. Postal Service. I, you know, I, it's been around for so long. It, it's almost as, it's actually more American than baseball. It is more. <laughs> that's right. Do you think one of the, the questions you asked at the beginning is, do you think that uh, Trump is out to sabotage the U.S. Postal Service? Because that's definitely the message that I've received from like my more progressive news intake is that it's, it's intentional because you thwart mail-in voting and that means less votes show up altogether or you question the mail-in voting system altogether and people won't be willing to vote and that works out in, quote-unquote, you know, supposedly Trump's favor. Do you think that's actually what's happening? I read an article on Fox News and it says, a quote from Trump, if you can protest in person, you can vote in person. And then when he openly admits to not helping bail out the debt of the USPS and just saying, yeah, it's going to hurt our election if I, if I fund it. Mm-hmm. It is ridiculous yeah. that he said that, number one. But yeah, it makes me believe that. But then I go to my uh, re- Republican friends or friends who don't believe uh, similar to me, and they're like, no, voter fraud. Voter fraud is, is a big deal. It's a yeah. big deal. So, so I looked it up, uh-huh. and I put together some numbers. Uh, in the 2016 election, um, according to the articles that I read, and I t- I'm taking a, a general average, because there's all kinds of articles now about you know millions and millions and millions. But before this article came out, they said that 73,000 votes out of 33 million were not counted because they were turned in late or signed wrong. And so that's 0.02% in the 2016 elections. So if there was a hunt, there were 128 million votes counted in the 2016 elections. So that would be roughly 2.8 million votes not counted. Mm-hmm. Now, just so you know, Hillary won the popular vote at 65.8 million, and Trump lost the popular vote at 62.9. So it's right there in that 2.8 million mm-hmm. range. Yeah. So, yes, it's a lot of votes. It is a lot of votes. They could not be counted. 
It's interesting. I've seen some similar, I've seen some numbers where uh, like I heard some people saying that we don't want to do more mail-in voting, voting because it encourages more Democrat uh, votes to show up. But I've seen some numbers that suggest that mail-in voting does not prove to be favorable to Democrats more than it does to Republicans, that it's a pretty mm-hmm. net neutral benefit. And so if you're thinking like more objectively about who votes via mail, well, the numbers are showing that it's pretty, pretty neutral. Like that Republicans and Democrats vote by mail at an equal number. And if you were to increase the availability to mail-in voting, it would increase both potential votes at a pretty neutral way. Because, you know, I think about like older folks who are immunocompromised right now and they don't want to go to the polls. Like if they had mail-in voting, they're more likely to vote. I think on a state like Utah where I live, which is Republican and has mail-in voting for all uh, people who live here, not just like you don't just have to select in for emergency mm. cases or whatever. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that Democrats get elected to Utah. Um, we're Utah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. In California, we have mail-in, everybody gets a mail-in ballot. So mm. you can send in your mail-in ballot at any time. Yeah. So there's a conspiracy theory rolling around Uh-oh. and it is, uh, this guy posted a video on Facebook and he said, hey, we're doing all these mail-in ballots because we're trying to not get the votes counted by January 20th because in the Constitution, on January 20th, the House gets to elect a president if a president hasn't been selected. Hmm. And I checked that source and he is correct. He said, oh, they're going to vote in Nancy Pelosi. But I was like, no, the House gets to elect the president mm-hmm. and the Senate gets to elect the vice president. So how would that be? The, the, how fascinating. The, right? How cool would that be? I mean, I, it would be it would be cool in that it would be like a historically phenomenal kind of experience. Right? But I don't even know, like, who is it that they... I mean, the House will choose a more progressive candidate or a Democrat candidate. The Senate will choose, a, like, a strange Republican vice president, and it'll be the weirdest... It'll be back to, like, the old days when... You know, like in the original presidential elections, you would run and your vice president would be the person who lost in the presidential election. It'd go back to that moment of like a weird duality in the White House, which could be a good thing, honestly. I would love to see that. I mean, when I thought of the idea that there would be a Democrat president and a Republican vice president, even it was vice versa, I would be like, now that's a pair I could get behind. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Who do you who do you think that the uh that each would choose. Do you have any guesses? If that if it if it actually happened, I I think that we might see the Republican Party choose. I here's the deal. I have a prediction. My prediction is that Trump will not leave in 2020, even if he loses. Mm-hmm. And I and my also prediction is that he's not going to leave in 2024 if he loses. He's just going <laughs> to stay and stay and stay until we kick him out. If on January 20th, because of the mail or whatever it is. If there is no decision or Trump pushes it to January 20th, uh, Mm. 2020, and there is a vote, what we have to look for is will the Republicans honor the Constitution? It's no longer will they support Trump, it's will they honor democracy? Will they honor the systems or will Mm. they just follow a leader who will then become a dictator? Yeah, interesting. That's probably the dumbest thing you ever heard. no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think, I mean, there's some stretches, right? Like you have to imagine, we have to get to a place where Trump doesn't leave office. You have to get to a place where so many mail-in votes or whatever happens and there's no like determined election in January 2020. So there's some things, there's some conspiratorial things that have to unfold first. 
But I think that you're, you're asking like fundamentally a good question, which is like, do we honor and uphold the systems of democracy and the rule of law? Or are we willing to, uh, to do away with those things because of party allegiance and leadership allegiance? Hmm. And I think the sad truth of history, I'm not even commenting on the moment that we're in right now, just the sad truth of history is that we're pretty much consistently willing to do away with the rule of law because of party allegiance and leadership allegiance. Yeah. Yeah. Last words on the USPS. They lost $2.2 billion between March and August. We bailed out banks and companies with over $11 trillion this mm-hmm. year, $29 trillion in 2008, but we won't bail out mm-hmm. or help the USPS. Yeah, and I think I, as much, as, as much consternation as the USPS has given me, I like that it's a service that we provide, and I think that there needs to be some serious changes of regulations. I know that one of the reasons USPS is in so much debt is because they have to fund pension packages for 72 years. Mm, wow. And so that's like one of the things that causes it to be in debt. I know that they're not allowed to regulate, they're not allowed to change prices of like stamps. And they said so the stamps price has been set for a long time, which you want to stay low. Like you don't want to increase to FedEx rates, but there should be some things that change on the regulation side to enable the USPS to actually thrive. But I think it should like, it's an organization and a system that I think we need to enable democracy to continue. I do too. You know, it's really hard too, like you said about the the rule of law. Uh, this just happened today. Uh, Steve Bannon was uh, Trump's chief executive yeah. officer and chief strategist, and, and he's being now uh, indicted by the federal grand jury in New York uh, on conspiracy to commit wire fraud and on conspiracy to commit money laundering. And he was arrested by agents with the U.S. Postal Service. So we've got people pulling money and laundering money from the U.S. Postal Service to make it look like it's failing. That's right. I always forget that. that the USPS, their like, enforcement agency, it's like one of the primary ways that like um, money laundering and financial crimes are actually investigated and caught. I, I can always forget about that, but like, that's a unique feature of the USPS. It's actually really important. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How cool would it be to be like a, like a financial cop slash post office guy in the mailman you deliver the mail and the criminals <laughs> i don't know i have a guy I, every time he comes to the door and gives me a package i've been saying thanks and now he just like comes to the door with a smile he, <laughs> That's he, right. hands, he hands it to me like like they do a business card in hong kong you know they held it with both hands and lean over and they say I love I'd that. Like, you know he's like here you go and i'm like thank you he's, yeah he's just like on his merry way but he could also indict me on money laundering if if he wanted to yeah. i mean he could t- he could deliver you <laughs> to federal prison uh, that's my last. That's my last bad mailman joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. So. No, I don't. I don't want that to happen either. It's hard to do podcasts in jail. <laughs> it would be very hard. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, the the USPS. I hope that they survive, and we should help them because they have provided a good service to us for 400 years almost. You get it. What's next? So next, um, this is actually a story that I think you are the smart guy in. So this is a story about um, from Vox.com about factory farming in the United States. And the, the premise of the article is that factory farming is the most dangerous risk to pandemics. The theory is that coronavirus emerged from the wet market, meat markets in China. And they like use that as an illustration, but they're primarily talking about U.S. factory farming and how it is the perfect conditions for spreading pandemics. They're crowded. They breed out all kinds of diversity. So a pathogen spreads rapidly. 
um, the animals become antibiotic resistant and the environment is so dangerous for workers that it endangers workers, which we've already seen during COVID-19. Um, we've seen meat shortages. Like there's a pepper. I just learned there's a pepperoni shortage because, um, <laughs> I know just, how much you love pepperoni. I do. I, 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 this is very basic, but I think my favorite food might be pepperoni pizza. And so this is a big deal to me. Um, but there's meat shortages because the COVID outbreak on factory floors has been so serious that it's depleted, um, like, people who can work in these spaces. So they're, they're, they're ripe environments for pandemics. And I think you're an expert in this because one, you've done a bunch of filming and documentary filming on, um, animal cruelty, factory farming, you and, um, uh, my friend and your wife, uh, Anna, my Tori, my wife always gets mad at me if I refer to somebody as only a spouse. So Anna's my friend and also your wife, you guys are both vegan um, and have been for a long time. It have been challenging people to be for a long time. So you're an expert in this topic. And the question that it makes me think of is, what should we do as regular consumers to push against this like factory food machine and to get better, safer food options? What's the what's the best option for us, Christian? Wow, you. This is a huge subject, and. It, yeah, I, I do have a little bit of experience. I worked for an activist company and we did quite a bit of filming and also gathered footage from people who would enter into factory farms illegally and capture the footage. And we got to see some of that. And um, they were, you know, prosecuted and some were put in federal prison. And, you know, first off, the factory farming industry is a miserable industry and it's corrupt. Mm -hmm. When we talk about viruses and unsafe things and bloodborne pathogens and droplets and virus causing agents, that is what this is. These are closed environments with fans that uh, would seem like a bathroom fan for an entire warehouse mm -hmm. of hundreds and thousands, probably thousands of animals. And, you know, with animals dying in their cages, living in their own feces. And, you know, to walk in there, people go, oh, that's so gross. But then we want to see a, a pig and just flesh and then just shove it in our mouths. But we don't want to go see the conditions that they're living in. Mm -hmm. And in their water supply, they put penicillin. So mm -hmm. we have all of this. Uh, that's why they become antibiotic resistant. And then you have workers working in these conditions who are just blood-stained, infection-soaked, just horrible working conditions uh, that, yeah, of course it's a pandemic race. Of course viruses and illnesses are going to be there. I mean, as dead pigs would come across the conveyor belt, if a worker sees any kind of pustule or anything, they're supposed to pop it and just let, let it disappear and oh, let man. it go down the line. So what can we do? Number one, eat less meat. <laughs> Number two, find uh, happy farms. Find people who do take, if you have to eat meat, find uh, farms that people take care of the animals, that they don't allow them to become sick, that they are concerned about what they're feeding them and the medicines that they're giving them. You know, you wouldn't just dump penicillin in your water every day and drink it, would you? I mean, we might have to one day, but um, we don't. <laughs> but I don't choose to on my own, yeah. Anyway, I'm on a rant. I think those are the three things, you know, three things is just eat less meat if you can and 
if you can't find uh, Happy Farms, and I don't know, I you know before uh, going vegan, we would look at meat as a side dish mm-hmm. instead of a main dish, and so if I tell someone I'm vegan, sometimes they just get personally offended, and I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to push that on them. I'm just declaring that I do like plant-based meals. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel better. I don't know. What yeah. do you think? I'm just been ranting and ranting. No, Christian, that was really good. Um, and th- this is a place where you're such an expert. So it's actually really helpful. I thought that was really good, like advice and really good, like clarification about like the factory farming. So that was really good. I, and I agree with you. I think like, like I am not vegan or vegetarian, but we have worked mainly because of like influences like you and my wife, Tori really cares. And so we have worked to reduce how much meat we eat. But it is, it is such a, this is almost like a, stu- this is a dumb thing to say, but it is such a mind shift to think about meat in a different way in America and to yeah. think about it as like a side dish or not a necessary part of the meal. So we're trying to eat less, trying to um, think diligently about where our food comes from and like how it was treated and how it was cared for. And then similarly, like to, to work as hard as we can to buy local because all the things you named about factory farming is so true, and they're a monopoly. There's oh, only yeah. so many meat producers in the United States, and they dominate the whole industry. Smithfield Farms kills over 6 million pigs every mm. year. Crazy. Isn't it? Uh, we were in Los Angeles once near the Tyson Farms, and I was filming a, a, a project, a VR project. We, we filmed down in Los Angeles at Tyson. A bunch of people protested the trucks coming in, and... You might catch mm-hmm. a glimpse of Joaquin Phoenix. He uh, shows up there quite often, and you can see the pigs. They're frightened, and they're mm-hmm. visibly tortured, and the protesters are trying to give them water, and then they enter in this almost warlike, barbed wire fence-guarded you know, Tyson Farms with the happy chicken face on it, and you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, man. I think that's... That is its own kind of revelation when the factory that produces the meat that you eat at is treated like it is looks like that. It kind of reminds me of the conversation that we had about federal agents in Portland, which is like if you militarize a bunch of federal agents, it communicates a message about what they're there for. Mm. And the same thing is true. Like if you take pigs or any animal to a militarized facility where it's like guarded and protected, mm-hmm. That communicates a message about what we believe about food, what we believe about animals, what's happening on the inside of that that we're not allowed to see. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went uh, and spent some time in the Amazon, and because 30% of the Amazon has been removed solely for uh, the use and uh, growth of the cattle industry. So 30% of the most precious rainforest has been mowed down just so we can feed our insatiable desire for cow flesh. Mm-hmm. And as we walked through, quote, the cleanest uh, factory farm in uh, Brazil, and um, the cows would come in, these two metal sheets would press them together so they couldn't move. They would scream almost like human. And then a guy with this uh, little metal gun type thing it would knock them in the head and sometimes it would knock them out and then they were shaking violently they would roll them out wrap a chain around their leg slit them down the stomach and then in one grand pull it would just pull their skin all the way off and hang them up and some of them were still alive and you could hear them like groaning with just being their flesh ripped 
from their bones. It is, it is horrifying. I think this podcast is going to get an explicit rating specifically. There were rivers of blood. I yeah. came out um, completely uh, covered in blood and sweat and tears and, uh, and the smell. The smell mm-hmm. did not leave me for weeks. So this is, you know, to, to pull the reverend card, this is one of the things that theologically really challenges me because like, if you're reading the story of the Bible, it's not until pretty late in the story that there is a allowance for eating meat and it's like given hesitantly. Hmm. And the picture that we get of like, what does the world look like when it's all good, when it's been fixed and it's right and people live in harmony, it is for sure a picture of like at least a vegetarian life where animals and humans lie down together. They're not seen as commodities for consumption. And so when I put the stories that you tell, what I know about factory farming with this like theological story that I have, this is a thing that really challenges me in my own like meat consumption and then challenging the way that I like, to be honest, you're just kind of lazy about it. And like, even as we try quote unquote to not eat meat, like it's, it feels talking to you even just now and thinking about it like, Oh, that's, it feels pretty lazy when that's actually the environment that, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like a good excuse. <laughs> well, a lot of people will ask questions like, where do you get your protein? And, um, how, if I can, you know, eat vegan food and not feel hungry in two hours, look around now is the perfect time to eat less meat. These plant-based meat companies are getting it right. And, There's all kinds of ways you can still get your junk food and there's all kinds of ways you can eat uh, vegan and feel satisfied and Mm -hmm. just notice the health change that will, that will hit you. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Well, even this weekend I'm going to do, and this is not impressive at all, but I'm going to, I'm making tacos for a bunch of friends and I'm doing uh, mushroom kale tacos and they're amazing. Like they, it has like this, you fry them up like you would a chorizo has the same kind of texture. It's really good. You know, like it don't, you don't even have to like spend a lot of money on fancy things. It's more accessible than ever. You get a cookbook, you, you'll be in you'll be in golden territory. There are a few American things in this world, right? Pepperoni, pizza, mm-hmm. hamburgers. Every year for Lent, um, which Lent is a like a period of time in the Christian holiday where you refrain from something, we pretty consistently give up meat, and it's so stupid. But the thing that I crave the most is pizza and tacos. Okay, I can get it rid of everything else for that period. And I didn't think about it. After a while, you actually lose the desire to eat meat and people like, no way you actually do. And when you try it again, it doesn't taste the same. Yeah, I can believe that. And it's not as satisfying. Mm -hmm. Man, you you left me on this downward note. I just feel bad about slavery and animals and well, do you, okay. Well, you often ask me if there's a final word, do you have any uh, final word on pandemic factory farming, eating less meat? Final word, it is better to eat less meat, and I do want to be able to send a letter for 57 cents. Amen. Amen. Well, everyone, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Come back again next week. If you like the conversations, hit subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Hey, if you want to know more about Dr. Johnny Morrison, go to johnnyis.com. Or about myself, you can find a little bit about me at christiansurge.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.